0: Welcome to Air Interview. I'm Mike, and this is the first of our two part series of the REF a Red Flag. In this episode, we chat with Tony Dixon as he describes what it was like to fly in the air to air role as a nav in the Tornado F3 and F4 Phantom. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. I would like to thank our sponsor, Custom Flight Helmets, Custom Solutions for your unique flight helmet. They refurbish and service flight helmets for collectors, general aviation and military pilots, tint visors, embroidered visor covers and flight bags, plus much more. We are really happy to be working with such a unique and professional company that offer customers a chance to create a unique flight helmet to suit their needs. You can find out more by visiting cfhelmets.com. Thank you. Tony, can you first
1: tell us what an um, exercise Red Flag is all about? OK, Red Flag is a... Um, it used to be just an American, started in the mid-1970s, and then starting in the 80s, they started inviting other countries to come and participate. They are, I think, one of the first ones to come, uh, and since then, they have uh, US-only flags, and then they have multinational ones. And it is basically to train people to fight with lots of different aeroplanes and different types at the same time.
0: So what was the first year you attended and what aircraft
1: was this on? The first one was an FGR-2 when I was at Wattisham and it was Red Flag 91 uh, but it was in 89 (laughs) (laughs) for some dumb reason. The first flag of the year was always in November but it was called the year after Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was with 74 Squadron although we flew the FGR-2 out there because it was a joint Um, effort from Watersham with 56. Mm -hmm. So we took out 56 aeroplanes and 19 and 92 aeroplanes because after the two weeks we were there, 19 and 92 took over and then they brought the aeroplanes back.
0: So what preparations would you do before going over?
1: You try and do um, two or four V-many over Wales or over Scotland, uh, having organised it with what was then the back end of the 80s, a lot of aeroplanes. I mean, you had GR1s, you had Bentwater's stuff, you had uh, Upper Hayford's stuff, you had Lakeney's stuff, F-111s, uh, Harriers, Jaguars. So you could get a lot of opposition to do it. And it was just tactics on flying in a four-ship against other aeroplanes. Normally, if you do it on your own, you don't have more than four, so it's Mm 2v2. Uh, but then you could do four ship operations and uh, even six or eight ship operations with twin caps, provided you had enough aeroplanes to play against.
0: Can you talk us through your first transit?
1: Yeah, we, uh, we went out from Wattersham uh, across to Goose Bay, tanked by the victors that were going to be in flag with us. Uh, we got to Goose Bay, I think it was uh, eight or ten aeroplanes we took, and uh, two went broke. So there was me and my squadron boss, wing commander Graham Clark, uh, and then uh, the senior flight commander, Di Whittingham, who's now in charge of the CAA, uh, and a guy called Stan Ralph. Uh, and we were stuck in Goose Bay for the day while they mended the aeroplanes. Now, Stan and I were both ex-Canberras, so we actually were very good at route flying and planning because we found out that there'd been no, what they call a lame duck plan. So... There was no planning as to how we were going to get to Vegas without tanker. So we basically got a map out, got a hand like that, which was about 1,000 miles on the map, and went like that, like that. Second stop was going to be at Offutt in Nebraska, which is where our Herc was with all our ground crew on, just in case an aeroplane really went broke and they had to come and get us. And so we went halfway in this place called Griffiths, and I think it's in New England, XB-52 base, KC-135 base. Um, And we did all the flight planning, went across to there. Um, There's a couple of guys jumped out who were ex-Navy carrier guys. Oh, I'm Phantom. I haven't done a Phantom for years. So they did all the clean, they did all the canopies, they did it. Oh, they had a great time. Mm -hmm. Uh, quick hour and a half on the ground and then flew across the central plains to Offutt. That was phenomenal. The bit of Central America to the east of the Rockies, just before you get to Denver, is just as far as the eye can see from uh, 30,000 feet, fields, circular fields, because that's the way they do the irrigation. But that way, that way, that way, that way, hundreds of miles of square fields, perfectly flat land. And then in front of you, you have a line of hills, which are the Rockies where Denver is. Uh, phenomenal. Dropped into offer quick turnaround again, got the offer of staying the night there, and we went, no, we'll press on to Vegas, because it wasn't that far only about 400 500 miles from then. Uh, and we dropped into Vegas in about 6 o'clock at night uh, to be met by the other ground crew. And, uh, and so all the aeroplanes were there, basically, and it was good.
0: So what was the role of the F-4 and that red flag?
1: OK, we did both red air and blue air. Red, air. red air are the bad guys, blue air are the good guys. So blue air is the bombers, the, the mud movers, the photographic aeroplanes. But there was an element of air defence support with them so we did a week of red and a week of blue. Red flag is the area to the north of Area 51. Red start on the western side, blue start on the eastern side, uh, and then all the bombing ranges are on the western side. So the GR1s, Jaguars and everything else go through into the bombing ranges and the fighters then come back to the east and come back down. Normally you tank... Um, so you, you get airborne out of Vegas, go north if you're blue air, tank, and then head west. Otherwise, if you're red air, you go west, round the south of Area 51, uh, tank, and then go in.
0: So could you talk us through a, a briefing? Was it different from the UK?
1: It was a mass briefing. Uh, if Well, if you're red air, there was only the uh, eight aeroplanes, so uh, eight crews, um, plus you had a, you chatted with an AWACS representative and the tanker guys uh, as to how to take on all these masses of uh, of aeroplanes. we were going to be 8V30, probably something like that. Well, you had each squadron of bombers had sort of six, so there'd be A-10s, um, German GR1s when we first went out. There were some Singaporean F-16s. Uh, there was the American f fifteen. Uh, A's I think they were then of the based lot who were normally red air but they were being uh, the uh, fighter defence guys Uh, and Hercs occasionally uh, you would have maybe in the night flags we did eventually F form of sevens so it was a complete mix of of stuff Uh, and so they had a lot bigger when you did the blue air bit that was quite convoluted uh, and we had a segment in it saying right All the blue air guys were talking about, we're going to go in this, we'll drop it on here, we'll do this. We're going, what's happening? We don't don't understand what you're talking about here. What are you going to do? We'll be above you, and defend you. Okay, guys, that's good.
0: (laughs) So how big was the the range, and was there any restrictions?
1: There's no supersonic restrictions. Technically, there was a 250 feet initially height restriction, although buccaneers were cleared to 100. There were some aeroplanes. you you used your national minimum limits. It's To give you an idea, it's open desert, rocky, with lines of hills with flat bits in between. The hills were really north-south and you went east-west. So you didn't want to go over them. You tried to find gaps in them around. Effectively, it's 100, 150 miles north of Las Vegas. Area 51 is to the south side, and that's a complete no-no to go anywhere. Close to it, you get sent home, interrogated, the whole works. Um, And it's about 100, 150 miles east-west and about 100 miles north-south with a little gap in the middle where Area 51 is that you can't go, so you can go around it. Um, And there are very few people there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very few people. There are a couple of farms. There's one place right in the middle, called the Farms, which has irrigation. So you see, basically, four green circular fields. Uh, because you relevant, relevance everything to areas: Coyote East, Caliente West, the Farms. So you know you're saying you're in a, a fight at the Farms. So if people aren't are free, they can come and help you or whatever. So that gives you a rough idea of what's going on. Once we got to F3s, there's a little more electronics in it, so we didn't have to do that much talking.
0: So can you tell us about some DSET trips you did in the F4?
1: Oh, everything, really. The F4, (coughs) jack of all trades. You know, it can do bombing, it can do recce, it can do fighters. It can do all of them reasonably well. It's not an air combat aeroplane. It can't beat... Uh, an F-16 and G. F-16 is a couple of 9G. F-4 is 4. So if you get in a fight, you're stuck. Um, you had to, t- to uh, alter your tactics depending on the aeroplane you were against. Uh, Jaguars, for instance, couldn't turn. Harriers, if you were up, up high, they do this viffing bit where they all stop and then turn around. Which is you have to be careful because if they can turn around quickly enough and you've flown through, they can perhaps get a sidewinder at you as you're going away. Jaguars invariably go quite quick. I did some DACT down in Detchimamano with Canadian starfighters. They came through the fight at 1.6 as a four ship and disappeared. And then three minutes later came back through the fight at 1.6 as a four ship and then went home because they'd run out of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't exactly combat. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you, you could do, you play with hawks in the UK. Um, that's difficult because they can out-turn you, but you can out-missile them. So the idea is to get yourself in a position where you've got a better missile shot than they have. And that's true for all your adversaries. But you see, most aeroplanes now, even Jaguars then had sidewinders. Harriers could put fit sidewinders on them. Um, Buccaneers didn't. Uh, A10s didn't in those days. But you didn't do... They, they didn't come up above 1,000 feet, they, they stay low all the time, so DACT technically is above 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Low, b- below that is low level combat manoeuvring.
0: <laughs> so how did the Americans view the FGR2?
1: Um, well they, they had the Phantom, so most of the guys, even the Eagle drivers, were probably ex-Phantoms, so they knew exactly what we could do and the capabilities of the aeroplane. Um, we could go slightly faster at different aspects because we had the Spay engines as opposed to their J79s. Um, but they knew that, so we were better down low with the Spay, whereas the J79 is better higher. Um, but in Red Flag, I mean, the combats could take place down on, down on the dirt or up at 20,000, 30,000 feet, depending on which element of the package that you were taking on. Tank on every sortie. We tried to but obviously a, a one or two Victors depending on uh, whether the Victor um, on the first flags we went on or the VC-10s on the second flags we went on uh, had the capability to tank all our aeroplanes. So maybe you'd launch eight, four a tank and the other four wouldn't because f- phys- physically on uh, time constraints. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you ca- uh, carry live weapons?
1: No you wouldn't. You'd, you'd, you'd carry a Sidewinder acquisition round. Which is which is exactly the same head as a sidewind, about that long, but then it'd be a hollow tube behind it, so that in the cockpit you have got the sound of the of the acquisition going. So it's exactly the same front end, but without any explosive, and that would be on one of the rails. You would also carry what's called an ACMI pod, air combat maneuvering instrumentation, uh, which is, looks like uh, an acquisition round, but that fits on one of the other stations. That transmits to uh, stations on the ground where you do, where you are, speed, height, and everything else, um, and then they play that back in the caravans back at Nellis, and then they play it back after a sortie.
0: So, talking about the debriefs, that 's obviously quite famous. Could you talk us through one? <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you land um, with the F4 here? We used to have to take film of um, the radar intercepts because there was no way of replaying it. You quickly went into the film debrief room. Went through it with a QI for any shots that you took, uh, and they would say yes, no, or whatever. If they were slightly out of um, configuration, um, they'd say no. So you'd then go into the main debrief, which is in a huge auditorium, with the shots that you've taken and the time you took it, which is the critical bit. You were in a huge theatre with a great big screen, and they would play the whole sortie. Um, so the screen would be 100, effectively 100 miles across. And all the aeroplanes should have tracked on them. Sometimes some of the aeroplanes didn't track properly. Or if they went behind a hill, they'd disappear for 10 seconds or so. Um, and then you just play along. And every time a shot came up, somebody would go, stop. Uh, at minute such and such, 20 seconds, um, green one took a shot on the southerly most of those tornadoes. Good shot they woke okay let 's have a look at that and you could actually uh you press the button and this little missile come off and track 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 and hit the uh, the airplane that you were aiming at because it actually might not be the one you thought it was and then they put a little coffin around that airplane, so anything it did in the future wasn 't counted just kept on flying of course um and Conversely, if you were shot by one of the F-15s, you had a coffin, so any future shots that you took didn't happen. Uh, that's something to flag. There's an ACMI, ACMI in Deci, and there was an ACMI in the North Sea. And what you'd do there, purely for training value, you'd be able to be dead for two minutes. You'd fly out of the, the fight and come back in and regenerate effectively. Uh, but on, on flag, it got, just got too difficult. So you'd be dead for the rest of the sortie. You'd still do all your training and everything else. And you'd, you'd do the whole lot. Um, sometimes, uh, I remember one when we were on F3s, uh, an eagle came in and said, right, I took a shot. There were three um, Italian tornadoes tracking. And he says, yeah, I came round, took a shot, uh, dead line astern on the singleton on the left-hand side of the three. Oh, OK. And the. Immediately, the Italian went, uh, Sorry, I'm number four. I wasn't tracking. I was three miles behind that one. And as you turn around, I took a sidewinder shot on you. And the whole auditorium just erupted. It was brilliant. And the American Eagle driver went, Because he'd never seen him. Because you never, if you're hooking in to a, a bunch of muds and you see three, there's always the card for. Always. And he just didn't look. I oh,
0: thought so this was an Italian GR, not an. Uh, ta- no Italian GR one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so would they track you from takeoff to landing? Yes. Or it just a find yeah.
1: You? Oh, they—they they had the potential to. Um, they didn't invariably because I think it would be difficult as soon as you took off because the tracking masts were actually in the range. Mm-hmm. So it's when you got close to the range you appeared, mm-hmm. uh, but of course you had AWACS support as well, so they were telling you where everything was. Uh, where the groups were massing and where the fighters were. Um, once we got to the F3, we could then reproduce that on our screens. But I mean, in this thing, we have a little radar box and that's it. And we had a map on your knee because if somebody said Calienti West, you go, well, that's there. We're here, so it, it's over there a bit. Um, so it was, it was more difficult with the F4, certainly.
0: So, would you say that the F4 performed well at Red Flag?
1: Absolutely. We had. Uh, We had good results, we had good, we still, I believe the RF has still got the best training crews in the world, Um, and we can adapt to different scenarios. Other air forces are more regimented, uh, and the way they fight is very regimented. Once you know that, that's easy. Obviously, in those days, it was against the Russians. We knew that they were extremely regimented and couldn't do anything on their own, and were told to do things by their ground control.
0: I'm really surprised about that, actually. I thought they'd have a bit more freedom.
1: Apparently not. You read some of the books and they were, um, maybe in a four-ship, there was one senior pilot and three youngsters, and the youngsters had to follow him no matter what. He was probably very good, but the others weren't. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect, come the war, the others wouldn't have lasted as long as he did.
0: Yeah. So how long did you spend over there on your first time, and did you enjoy it?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) you enjoy staying in Vegas for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, Two weeks. You go over on, when we're on the F4s, we left on a Wednesday. Night stopped in Goose Bay, uh, and we should have got there Thursday. As it was, we got there Friday because we lost the day. The mass briefing before the flag is on the Sunday, which everybody has to be at. And then you fly Monday to Friday, have Saturday off, and then you fly Sunday to Friday. Uh, on the second week, and then you finish. You come home, and the other squadrons come out. In our case, with F4s, we had uh, 74 and 56 the first two weeks, and then 19 and 92 came out for the second two weeks. I think with some of the F3 ones, now flags have gone to six weeks, so you can get three lots of uh, squadrons.
0: Can't be bad Vegas and flying for two weeks.
1: (laughs) We had a big sandstorm once. Curiously, we seem to have the winter... Uh, and the weather can be bad they can have high winds uh, you, up in the desert you can have 40, 50 knot winds basically you can't fly over there even Vegas might be nice but up in the desert it's a lot different yeah. you know, you're know, you talking about a five, 6,000 feet base where the ground is and, and a lot of things can be different up there mm-hmm.
0: You then flew on two exercises on the Tornado. or can you tell us what squadron is this with?
1: Yeah I was with five squadron and uh, we went out in 92 with uh, 29 uh, and I think we were the middle I seem to remember we must have been the middle of the six because we uh, air transported out and air transported back um, so I didn't have the joy of, of flying a, an aeroplane across again mm-hmm. which is a shame because hey, parts of America are tremendous mm-hmm. Uh, and we picked up in the middle of a flag. The problem was the two flags that I did with the F-3 were night flags or day-night flags. So as opposed to two day waves, you did an afternoon wave and a night wave. The night waves, I wouldn't say they were useless, or, but they didn't give as much practical training because the Americans were... I mean, you've got 40, 50 airplanes in the airspace, so the Americans were very, very strict on height blocks so if it was four of you, when you had the threes to sevens, one was at 13, one was at 14, one was at 15, one was at 16, and you could only move up and down, and you couldn't move out of yours unless you saw the other ones. You certainly got, couldn't go down to 7,000 feet, because you went unless you positively cleared that block. Now, if you get illuminated by a missile, the first thing you do is break and either and dive. Well, technically, you couldn't do that. Uh, and so your anti-missile manoeuvring was more difficult at night, mm-hmm. and you tend, tend more people tended to get shot because they physically couldn't do what they did during the day at night time, mm-hmm. um, and you couldn't do close combat because once you got close-ish, you were in your height blocks, uh, and you, know, you couldn't. You just see a set of lights uh, and wasn't much practical benefit out of it. Mm -hmm. The mud movers, GR1s, um, yeah they could do night TFR but you can do night TFR in the UK with us looking at you for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, So the practical benefit they got I'm not sure was as good as day ones.
0: Yeah. So was the tornado a lot more capable? um,
1: You had more ability to know what was going on. The radars were better I mean, instead of looking down here, down between my knees, you had two TV tabs up here, one of which was the radar and one of which was the map. Uh, And you put positions on the map so you knew where bits and pieces were. Once we got Link 16 from AWACS, their picture was on the screen so you could see basically everything that was going on. Uh, And so you had more situational awareness... Uh, and more ability to uh, to see what was going on mm-hmm.
0: so did you operate the Tornado differently to the F4 when you went over?
1: <sighs> no, the, the the airplane does the same It's a fighter. It's designed to shoot other people down You did it slightly differently because uh, you had more awareness of what was going on you could um, Maneuver probably the same in fact the F4.5 yeah, 5G was about a practical maximum for these. They're not Pure fighters They're not the F-15s, 16s, uh, 18s who can pull 7, 8G quite happily. Uh, and so you had to, to temper your tactic uh, to, in that way. The best way was run away. You know, you come into a mix, you see a pair of, of F-16s there, you think, right, I'll go away, come back tomorrow. Because you can come back tomorrow. Run away bravely. <laughs> Run away bravely, yeah. Um, because then you could use your weapon system. You know, If you could get far enough away, turn around and fire um, a sky flash at them. That's better than trying to turn around behind them and fire a, a sidewinder.
0: So how did the F3 uh, fare against the, the American types?
1: We out-tacticked them. As I said earlier on, um, we have the best tactics. Oh, I believed at that stage we had the best tactics. And therefore we operated... They were trying to fire amrams all the time, which they fire at 20-odd miles, uh, and then they turn around, and the amram can then fly all by itself, going up to thirty, forty thousand 40,000 feet, and then come down again. But they assume that you keep in uh, a straight line. If you remember the famous Battle of Britain film, one of the biggest things for the new pilots, never fly in a straight line for more than 30 seconds in combat. It still applies. You know, if somebody's firing a missile that goes to sleep in its transit, so you don't know it's coming, and then only comes back on again in the final phase. It'll come back on for three or four seconds, and if you're still in the little bit of airspace it thinks you are, you've got no problem. Oh well, no, you've got no chance. But if you've manoeuvred out the way and it doesn't see anything, it'll just keep on going.
0: Yeah. So would you go up in two ships or four ships?
1: Uh, Sixes with the tornadoes. I think we went with eights with the F threes. And um, it was either six or eight. You went up in as many as you took with as you could get on, uh, you know, that was serviceable for that day, depending on how many you took. Effectively. So, would
0: you, so would you work with uh, airwax uh, every mission?
1: Yes, the airwax would be there all the time. Uh, and when you were blue air, you either sat up on a cap, high level, uh, and went out in front of the bombers, or sometimes we embedded in the bomber stream. Uh, I remember on one of the flags we sat on a a B1's wing. Uh, And in the pre-brief, he says, you can't do that. we said, why not? You can't fly fast enough. Yeah, I think we can. (laughs) In fact, we easily did it. (laughs) Because what you did, you sit on his wing in what's called res cell, resolution cell. And a fighter coming the other way will only see one blip. Uh, You don't have your radar on, but you're getting information from AWACS. So you know what's going on. Uh, And when he gets to about 10 miles the B-1 will manoeuvre to avoid a possible missile. We will then just pull away, climb up, turn the radar on and surprise this F-15 pilot with an AMRAM coming, uh, with a sky flash coming at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked very, very well, it really did.
0: So did the heat um, affect like serviceability or the pilots and mm-hmm. themselves?
1: No, once you got in the aeroplane, the first when we were in there with the F-3s, uh, sorry F-4s, it was 90 on the uh, on the pan late November early November Uh, the F3 ones were February and therefore the temperatures were 80s so it wasn't that bad really there's a long runway at Nellis anyway a long pair of runways and uh, so it didn't affect you that much and once you're up in the the desert the only problem was the fact that you were operating at ground level of five six thousand feet Uh, and therefore you know as, as you go higher the air gets thinner and the performance Gets less, but that's the same for everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what would you say the biggest strength of the F three was compared to all the other types?
1: I think the once you got the Link sixteen, the ability to see on your screen what everything was, everything's going on. I mean, the Typhoon's got a similar uh, sort of system. Um, you don't need to use a radio then, because you can color code or change the symbol, or the AWACS can, basically allocating you a particular target. Without telling you, radar, radio-wise, uh, and so you can just operate uh, with no comms jamming, for instance, uh, which probably would have happened in in any proper wartime with a sophisticated enemy, not with Kuwait or Iraq or anything like that, because there wasn't really a sophisticated opposition that could do that sort of thing. The the problem with with Nellis, it's got two runways. Um, and you've got 40 aeroplanes you've got to get off in a particular time. All right, the fighters normally get off slightly earlier because they have to go to the west and it's a longer transit. Or you could, off- you could argue that the, bom- the bombers go slightly early because they go and pre-tank. So it was staggered a little bit. What you've got to remember is that Nellis is not just a red flag. There are a couple of squadrons of A-10s who do bombing ranges to the east. There's uh, weapons schools. There's probably upwards of 120 aeroplanes on the pan, of which only 60 were involved in Red Flag. So the others are doing their normal daily stuff. So they have effectively one runway for takeoffs, one runway for landings. You can use both. If nothing's landing at the time you're going, you can get aircraft airborne quicker. But normally, I mean, they're slick. They do it every day. Uh, So the air traffic controllers are very slick. And if an aircraft if you've got a mass recovery, because you can't really dictate as your landing slots because depending on how much the pilot's been using, the throttle as to how much fuel you've got, what time you're coming back and everything else. So you could, you know, you could come in for the break and you could be clear for, I think it was one eight the runway, Yeah, they could change you from one eight left to one eight right. So you break the other way or you break the, no, in fact, you break the same way, but then just ease the, the the final's turn so that you went on the other runway because nobody's using it. That means somebody else could come in behind you quicker. Mm-hmm. It's very slick. Very slick.
0: So would you often go supersonic over the ranges?
1: You could do. Um I think some of the bombers used to to run away from a fighter that's behind them. Probably going supersonic is you lose fuel. If you're running away from a fighter and a missile, yes you could. Yeah. But otherwise you wouldn't, it just it's just a waste of fuel.
0: So what did the F3 fly with? Was it always fitted with the
1: two tanks or did you fly clean? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I've got the pictures I've got. Some are clean uh, and some have the two tanks. The problem with the tanks, of course, is you can't to- do the turning. Um, I think a lot of the times we, did, we went clean because we tanked <laughs> uh, and, you, and then you could do it that way. If you didn't have the tanker, you had the, had the tanks on so that you could actually got the, the time. So how long do you spend over there on both on both tours? Um, well it say a two you had a two weeks over there we fl- you know you flew across Sevier or air i think we went out and back on a tristar a couple of times uh, for the for two weeks and then came back but you did about a four week workup doing various bits and pieces before you went out and obviously when you were in the simulator your simulators were 1v4 1v 1B whatever uh, and did it that way so which did you prefer, the F4 or the F3 at Red flag? <laughs> <sighs> I like the F4 because it was more fun to fly. Uh, the F3 was better because it, was, it operated better. Um, but it's, it's purely an opinion. It depends on whether you're, you're, pl- you're dealing with your heart or your mind. Mm-hmm. Your mind the F3 is better, your heart the F4 was good.
0: overall did you enjoy your
1: experience at red flag oh absolutely i mean in the evenings we when we did uh the day flags for instance you used to fly afternoon if you for instance if you flew an afternoon slot you did a morning slot the next day so you get back to your room at 10 o'clock at night from the afternoon slot and you were up again at five o'clock in the morning then you finish that one and you get back after the debrief about three o'clock in the afternoon and then you weren't didn't have to go in until 10 o'clock the following morning. So you had that night off, effectively. And you lived close to the strip in apartments. Um, the strip was the cheapest place for food, because you could pick food up at the prices. Um, people did gamble but we, vac- we had, it was a trick of finding the cheapest uh, blackjack tables and the, the, the cheapest slots effectively um, but of course if you went into you go into a seat casino there's no clock yes. they don't have clocks so you could be there all day uh, but you normally went out in groups so you didn't let somebody off on his own to make any mistakes that you might I don't think anybody got married while we were out there <laughs> That's something <laughs> anyway Saw Elvis a couple of times though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the basic layout for a red flag. If you've got this, look at the map. Las Vegas is to the south. All the area to the north is effectively desert. The square in the middle is Area 51. Absolute no, 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 don't go there. The area ranges to the north, and there's 10 or 12 different range areas. And they're all used during Red Flag. The bits down to the south and west were where they did some underground nuclear testing back in the 50s. You can't go over there either. Um, Red Air, take off, go to the west and start off on the western side. Western side ranges have the air to ground ranges. So that's where you can drop all the bombs and everything else like that. And you also have a lot of simulated missile sites down that area. So the the mud movers (coughs) can attack a missile site and get the right missiles uh, warnings. The blue air guys get airborne, go up this corridor to the east. If you have to tank, you'll do that off here, and then you'll start at a particular time. Blue will know what time you start, red won't. They'll know roughly uh, within about five minutes. And you effectively go east to west drop your bombs, and then come back west to east, fight your way out. Um, if we tanked, we probably had enough time to wait for them and come back uh, and help them fight their way out. We didn't normally go much further west than where north of Area 51 you didn't want to go over the bombing ranges anyway. So you you fought, them, fought your way in with them, loitered, Uh, and then came back out with them, (coughs) excuse me. you normally found that the F-15s probably didn't have that much fuel, so they were going to run home at the the time. Technically, red air came home that way uh, and blue air came home that way, but if you found your way over here and you were desperately short of fuel, you basically came the easiest way, but not going through the box in the middle, because that was an absolute no-no. I remember there was one aeroplane. I can't remember if it was an F-4 or an F-3. Up in the top of here is an airfield called Turnapar Test Range. And it's an airfield and it was um, an F-117 base. And they had to land there. They had a hydraulic problem, uh, which meant they had to land within about 20 minutes. Um, There was a lot of diplomatic problems when they landed there. Although they said they didn't see anything because everything's kept in hangars. Uh, but the the grilling of why you did this, are you are you spies, are you this? And because the Americans, this is the... It must have been F-4 days, so we're talking 1989 when the F-417 was newish. And, uh, and the Americans were a little bit twitched about it, to say the least. Uh, and you basically fought your way out, fought your way back. There was another airfield down to the south here called Indian Springs. I seem to remember AV-8's... Uh, flew from there purely because it was closer and they didn't have the range to do anything else. But it's all desert. There are various ridges north-south which were um, places like, it says Caliente West, they got um, the Coyote Canyon, uh, Coyote Delta, the farms. And they were all places that you knew about so that if they said... OK, there's a fight going over the farms or the, the red air over the farms. You knew where they were. So if you either wanted to fight with them, you went to them. Or if you didn't want to fight with them, you avoided them. Uh, and these are all north-south ridges. that's the problem, you had to go east-west. So you had to find gaps where the ridge dropped down a bit, uh, or certainly the mud movers did, because uh, they don't like to go over the top of a ridge. Because if you are doing four or 500 knots and you go over a ridge at 90 degrees, you normally balloon over the top. Um, or the tactical way is to, as you go up to a ridge, invert, pull, and go back the right way because an aeroplane prefers to pull G rather than push G. So if you push, you will balloon over the top and this is navigator speaking. Apart from that, it's uh, there are very, very few people up there. You can go supersonic uh, at low level if you wish uh, and some of the MUDs who were capable of it could do it and did it. Not much point for fighters. If you go supersonic, you tend to run out of fuel very, very quickly. Okay, Uh, we're talking about October 1989 now. 17th, with an FGR2 with squadron boss Graham Clark. We flew from Wallisham to Goose Bay. uh, TriStar AAR for that, five hours 40. The TriStar, I seem to remember then... uh, Continued on to Nellis because two aeroplanes went broke. Uh, ours being one of them, which was 480, which is interesting because the one here is 490, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, yeah. Um, it was mended overnight uh, and then we flew as a pair because another aeroplane then broke. Goose Bay to Griffiths, two hours 20, Griffiths to Offutt, two hours 20, and then Offutt to Nellis, two hours 15. We then uh, had three or four days while the engineers got the aeroplane sorted out. First red flag sortie was an hour 20, which is basically a range for mill. You just flew over it to get used to all the places. And then the next, we missed a day. Then the next uh, time, three days running, we did Victor AAR of a two hour, an hour 50 sortie, or then one untanked of an hour. Um, and then the that was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thir- no, Monday, Wednesday, f- Thursday, Friday. Miss a day. Sunday, Monday, and then we did three more the next week. All again hour hour forty five. Uh, I suspect that I've missed that out because I suspect we uh, um, went we tanked on that for the hour forty five, and then we came home by Civia and that was it for the F3, F4s right, F3s October 92 okay 5 squadron tornado F3s um, Red Flag 93-1 I flew with a guy called Mark Sheldon who is a good friend of mine still lives uh, locally in uh, in Lincolnshire. He's now an EasyJet training captain. Uh, he was then just a lowly flight lieutenant, but then he became QFI QY Stanival guy. Uh, good guy, nice nice guy. And we did uh, Victor AR. We'd gone out there by Tristar, and we flew uh, three days the first three times the first week and three times the second week. I remember it was very windy that week uh, and some of the flights we couldn't do because of wind on the range. The range is about five or 6,000 feet high and if it gets windy you're talking 45 knots on the ground which makes it unsafe to eject over so you just don't do it. Uh, And that was a day and night flag. If you see over here we did a day, we did a night, day, night, day, night, DNCO radar at night that's why it's only 45 minutes because we came home there's not much point in flying at night without a radar you're not going to get any training value out of it and then the final one i did was in 1999 yeah i didn't do that much on on red flag it was red flag 99.2 Guy with flew with a guy called Al Seymour, who was a squadron Q uh, QWI weapons instructor, who is now a Typhoon pilot and has got promoted a couple of times. Uh, and we did a FAML sortie, VC-10 AAR five V many, uh, VC-10 AR six V many, and then two more six V many, six V many. We were again. It was a day night flag. We did days the first week. We did nights the second week. Days we were blue air, and so we sat on the wing of uh, a B1 that down at low level. Nights, you obviously you're on your own. You don't get much out of it. It's difficult operating a six ship at night, um, and ta- your tactics have to have to change accordingly.